Today's message is the last sermon in our series on marriage. Now what I've done in this series is I've laid out what I consider to be the fundamental principles of marriage. It's what you should know before you get married, not after. Now I'll be honest with you, 99% of you did not know what I've been teaching before you got married. But that's why you had so many problems. That's why you hit so many speed bumps in your marriage. And so one of the desires that I have is to prepare people properly for marriage. Now, you might be saying, well, fine, Alan, I've been married for 25 years, and it has been a bumpy road. But I want you to understand that you can teach your children the principles that I'm teaching you so they can know them before they get married. Now, in week one, I taught what is called the priority principle. God is to be your number one priority. Your spouse is to be number two. And I explained the potential for disaster if you ignored this principle. In week two, I taught on man's responsibility to cleave unto his wife. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word cleave is translated from the Hebrew word debak, which means to pursue with affection and devotion. Now what's interesting is that this word is normally used to refer to man's relationship with God. Not man's relationship to other men. It's always used in reference to man's relationship with God, with the exception of marriage. As an example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse number 20, it tells us that we are to cleave unto God. What that means is that we're supposed to pursue God with affection and devotion. And if we ever stop pursuing God, then we're not considered to be cleaving unto Him. Does that make sense? So when a man marries a woman... God expects him to cleave unto his wife. In other words, God expects him to pursue her with affection and devotion. And if he ever stops pursuing her, her, then he is not cleaving unto her. So men, when you get married, you're supposed to be even more romantic than you were when you were dating. You're supposed to be more thoughtful and more caring than you were when you were dating. At least that's what Genesis chapter 2 verse number 24 says. Now, last week... I taught on the wife's responsibility to be receptive to her husband's romantic gestures, to his pursuit of her. And I think most women were shocked to learn that if you're not receptive to your husband's pursuit, to your husband's romantic gestures, then the Bible classifies you as a contentious woman. That's right. And I'm not going to elaborate on that because I was skating on thin ice last week and I know it. Then I just want to thank you that you didn't meet out front and decide to stone me. I told all the men, I'm not scared of any man here, but I'm scared of all the women. I know what a woman can do. Anyways, now this week we're going to talk about the marriage covenant itself. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Malachi chapter 2, verse number 14. And let me give you a little bit of background information before I read the verse. Things weren't working out for the Israelites and they were starting to wonder why God wasn't coming through and all, with all of his promises and all of the ways that he said that he would bless them. And God had to explain to them that they didn't have their priorities right. And they were doing certain things that were an abomination unto him. And he was telling them, you need to get your house in order. Now knowing that, let's read Malachi chapter 2 verse number 14. You ask Why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. 
Now, I want you to underline the word covenant. Covenant is translated from the Hebrew word berith, which literally means to bind together. So a marriage covenant is a is something that binds two people together in a special relationship for life, a monogamous relationship. And to consummate this special relationship, the couple has sexual intercourse, at which time the man's sex organ penetrates the woman, breaking her hymen. There is a breaking of her body, the shedding of blood, and the two become one flesh. They are now joined together as husband and wife, now catch this, for Life, for life, it is a blood covenant, and the life of the body is in the blood. Now, this consummation process is patterned after the covenant between Christ and the church. You see, through the Holy Spirit, we have been immersed into the body of Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13 tells us. As a result of that, there is a breaking of his body, there is a shedding of his blood, and we become one spirit with him, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. We are now considered to be joined together as covenant partners. What's mine is his. What he, what's his is mine. Now we know what is mine. Mine is sin. So he becomes my sin in order that I might become his righteousness. Does that make sense? And that's what the book of 2 Corinthians tells us. So the marriage covenant is patterned after the covenant between Christ and the church. Now let me emphasize a very important detail. And if I ever use the word emphasize, what is that telling you? You need to write this down. So pull out your pencil or your pen and I want you to write this down. Marriage is a covenant. It is not a contract. That is so important I'm going to say it again. Marriage is a covenant. It is not a contract. Now let me explain the difference between a covenant and a contract because they are not the same. A contract is based on mutual distrust. It's meant to protect me from you and you from me. As long as you hold up your part, then we're good. But if you don't hold up your part of the deal, then I can get out of it. And I can sue you for a breach of contract. And that's how most people view marriage. They view marriage as a contract. If you hold up your part of the deal, then we're good. But if you don't, I can get out of it and I can sue you for divorce. Now, a covenant is different. A covenant is based on mutual trust. It's different than a contract. You see, a contract is built on mutual distrust. I write this contract because I don't trust you. This is to protect me from you. But a covenant is totally different. A covenant is built on on, uh, mutual trust. You see, during the wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom made a vow before God. And I hope that when you were married, that the pastor used The vows, similar to what I do, so just kind of listen to what the minister usually says. The minister will ask the groom, do you promise before God and these witnesses to love her, to nourish and cherish her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, and forsaking all others, keep thee only unto her so long as you both shall live. And the groom's not even listening. He's just thinking about the night. And he says, I do. So the minister turns to the bride. And he asks her the very same thing. 
Do you promise before God and these witnesses to love him, to nourish and comfort him, to honor and keep him in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, and forsaking all others, keeping thee only unto him so long as you both shall live? And the bride says, and the, and the minister says, I'm sorry. One more time. I do. But I want you to notice, there is no contract to sign that details the responsibilities of both parties. There's no contract that would give the bride or the groom the right to get out of the marriage if the other breaks the contract. No. What you're signing after the wedding ceremony is a license. It is not a contract. I know that. I am the one that types that license out and turns it back into the courthouse. I put my book number, my page number, of my ordination license, and I turn it in saying that I have the authority. The state has vested this authority in me to marry this couple. But all it is is a license and a way for the state to make money. I want you to understand that. But you did not sign a contract when you got married. The only thing that holds a married couple together is trust that the other will be faithful to the vows. Now let me say that again. The only thing that holds a married couple together is trust that the other will be faithful to their vows. So that's why honesty and truth are the essential building blocks of a healthy marriage. Because honesty and truth build trust. Whereas dishonesty and lies undermine trust. You see, if Lisa lies to me or she's less than honest with me and I find out, I start to wonder. Well, I wonder what else she has lied to me about. I wonder what other areas she's being dishonest to me in. And that begins to undermine the trust that I have in Lisa. And that's all that a marriage is built on. Trust. Faith in each other. And even if it's just in one area that I can't trust her, my marriage is going to suffer. My marriage is going to be shaky at best. Why? Because marriage is built on trust. And that's the way that God designed it to be from the very beginning. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back to the very beginning. We're going to look at Adam and Eve when they were married and how God intended their marriage to be from the very beginning. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verse number 24 again. And then we're going to read verse number 25 with it. It says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. This is the way God intended it to be from the beginning. Now let's keep reading verse 25. And they were both naked. Now let me explain something if you're not from Cherokee County. We don't pronounce it naked unless it's dirty. When you give your little baby a bath and, you know, you put all the lotion on and the powder that you're supposed to and you smell, ooh, they just smell good. And you say, look at that, she's as naked as a jaybird. See, that's innocent. That's nice. But when you see two people and you come in and say, they were naked, that means dirty. All right? And if you're not from Cherokee County, you don't realize that. So they weren't naked in verse number 25. They were naked. It says, and they were both naked. That's Alan Nolan theology. The man and his wife, and the man and his wife, were not ashamed. In the very beginning, they're married. God has brought Eve down. He presents her to Adam. He officiates the wedding ceremony. 
Therefore, based upon this, God's intention for marriage for all generations is for a man to leave his father and mother, to cleave unto his wife, to pursue her hard with affection and devotion for the rest of his life. And those two shall be one flesh. Two, one flesh. And in the very beginning it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now some of us sometimes have this concept that God intended for everyone to be naked until Satan came. Now that's not what this is saying. They, weren't, they didn't have any children, there weren't anyone else. All this is saying is that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now I want you to underline the word ashamed. Ashamed is translated from the Hebrew word bush. And it means more than just being embarrassed. Genesis 2.25 is not saying that Adam and Eve were naked and they were not embarrassed. No. The word bush means so much more than that. The word bush means to feel shame in the sense of guilt. Usually because you've done something wrong. It can also mean to, com to feel completely worthless as a result of guilt. So what this is saying is that Adam and Eve were naked and they didn't feel guilty about it. They felt no shame whatsoever. Now, to really understand the significance of this story, you need to realize that even though this story is literal, it's also allegorical in nature. Now, does everyone know what an allegory is? If you don't know what an allegory is, let me just explain it. An allegory is a story in which the events have a symbolic meaning. So this story is both literal and allegorical. You see, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there really never was an Adam and Eve. That's just a story trying to teach some spiritual principles. That is not true. There was a literal Adam and Eve. What the Bible records in the book of Genesis, I truly believe is literal. It really happened the way that God said it happened. But just because it's literal doesn't mean that it's not allegorical. So this is literal in the sense that it really happened. But it's also allegorical in that the events have symbolic meaning. Does that make sense? Good. So let's look at the symbolism. Adam and Eve's nakedness symbolizes openness and honesty. They had nothing to hide. There was nothing to feel guilty about. There was nothing to be ashamed of. But we all know what happened down the road. What happened down the road? Adam and Eve sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened. Their innocence was shattered. And for the first time ever, they experienced guilt. This guilt over their sin brought shame, and it also brought a sense of feeling worthless. We don't have the right to stand in the presence of God. So not only did they make clothes to hide the shame that they felt, but they also hid from the presence of God. They weren't worthy to come into his presence. And they never felt that way before. So they did what came natural. They tried to cover it up. Because to remain open and exposed after what they did was just too shameful. This means so much more than embarrassed. So what they had to do is they had to clothe themselves to hide their guilt. And people, I want you to understand something. This is human nature. When we, do, when we sin and we do something that we shouldn't have done, then we try to hide it. We try to cover it up. Because we don't want anyone to know about what we've done. And sometimes it's not what we've done, it's what someone else has done to us. Now I'm going to get into some sensitive areas, so let me say that again. Sometimes it's not what we've done, it's what others have done to us. 
but it was sinful what they did to us. And so even though we weren't responsible for what happened because we were a child, we still feel guilty, ashamed. And that makes us feel worthless, not worthy to have this good of a relationship, not worthy to have a right relationship with God, not worthy to have this many blessings. Now, let me explain why it's human nature to be this way. It's human nature to connect what we've done with who we are. We do it all the time without even thinking. If someone commits murder, how do we refer to them? Well, he's a murderer. If someone lies, how do you refer to them? Well, he's a liar. If someone commits adultery, what are they? They're an adulterer. Yeah. The sin is connected to the person. If you cheat, you're a cheater. If you're a busybody, you're a busybody. If you gossip, you're a gossiper. Why? Because it's human nature to connect what we've done with who we are. And for some reason, it's human nature to connect what's happened to us with who we are. So if you were molested as a child, it's human nature to connect what happened to you with who you are as a person. You're not responsible for what that person did to you. You're not responsible for the sin that they committed. But because they did it with you, it's human nature to connect what's happened to you with who you are as a person. And we do that subconsciously. So we end up carrying guilt and shame for something that's not even our fault. It's what someone else did to us, but it still affects us for the rest of our life. And it still makes us feel dirty, tainted, and yes, even worthless. Does that make sense? That's why we hide it. That's why we try to cover it up. So it's human nature to do what Adam and Eve did. So this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about how the things in our past affect our present, affect our marriage. Because as I said, marriage is built on mutual trust. It is not a contract, people. It's a covenant. And the only thing that holds two people together is trust in your partner that they're going to be faithful to their vows. And so what builds this trust is honesty and openness. What undermines trust is dishonesty and lies. But when bad things happen to us as we're growing up, or sometimes even after we're grown, we connect what, with what happened to us, maybe even what we did to ourselves as a person. And we do what Adam and Eve did. We cover it up. We hide it. So let me show you how things from your past can affect your marriage. And you wonder why you have problems. And you go from one failed marriage to the next. One failed marriage to the next. Let's talk about that. I'm going to give some examples. And I'm going to give two examples. Let's suppose that you and your boyfriend think you love each other. You don't understand what the Bible teaches and the purpose of being pure. Celibate. So as a result, you have sex out of wedlock and you end up getting pregnant. Well, you're young, and so you do what most people do. In order to get out of the pregnancy, you have an abortion. Or let's suppose that you were molested as a child. Maybe a family person, maybe a babysitter, whatever took place. Maybe a kid down the neighborhood that was a little bit older than you. Something happened and you were molested as a child. Could have gone on for years or it could have been a one-time incident. So years later, 
Those things have been pushed back, you think, and you've dealt with all of that, and you get married. Now you enter into a relationship where God expects you to be naked with your spouse and not ashamed. Allegorically speaking. Yes, men, God expects her to be naked with you, and that's why you got married, I understand. But I'm speaking allegorically. Now you're married, you enter into this relationship where God expects you to be naked with your spouse and not ashamed. And we're talking allegorically. So you're in a relationship where you're supposed to be honest and open with your spouse with nothing to hide because the marriage covenant is built on trust. And honesty and truth is what builds trust. Dishonesty and lies is what undermines trust. But you have these secrets from your past. You've had an abortion or maybe you've been molested as a child. And because of the guilt and the shame, you not only hide those things from others, and I'm not saying it's appropriate to go around telling everyone what you did. Uh Uh-uh. I want you to understand something. The Bible says that there's only a special relationship where you're naked. I don't go out and tell you all the things that I've done in the past. Well, I'm kind of an open book, so I do. But most people don't do that. It's not socially correct. Does that make sense? You know, some people just don't get it. Socially, you just don't do those things. But you're not supposed to be naked and open and honest with everyone. You're not supposed to have all these things exposed. Here I am. You know, when your kids are little and they'll do this, you're giving them a bath. Someone is at the door. You know, uh, you get them out of the bathtub and you go to answer the door. And before you know it, they've run in front of you, open the door, and they're standing naked in front of that person and you laugh why do you laugh because that child is innocent there's nothing wrong he has no shame or guilt God created him this way my sister's going to hate me telling you this but my mom could never allow her to go outside in the backyard without being supervised because when she was two or three the first thing she did was took off all her clothes she was naked and not ashamed but if Carol was doing that when she was 20 years old we got a problem Do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm not saying that you're supposed to be when bad things happen to you. Maybe you've had an abortion in the past. Maybe you've been molested in the past. That's not to be shared with everyone. But there is one special relationship where God created in the beginning that those two would be naked and not ashamed. That's in a marriage covenant. So now you enter into this relationship, but you have secrets from the past. And because of the guilt and shame, you not only hide those things from others, but you also hide those things from your spouse, the one that you're supposed to be open and honest with, the one you're supposed to be naked in front of and not ashamed, allegorically speaking. The one person you should have nothing to hide from. But the reason you're hiding those things from them is because you subconsciously think that if you were truly open and honest with them, And they saw you for who you really are. And what you've done or what's been done to you, they might not accept you. And the guilt of it causes shame. So you do what Adam and Eve did. You clothe that. You hide it. So you never allow yourself to be emotionally naked in front of your spouse. You just naturally hide those things in your past, and you never talk about them. They're simply off limits. But let me tell you what that means. That means that you never get to enter into the type of marriage that God wants you to be in. 
You're never going to experience that one special relationship where you can be emotionally naked with your spouse and not be ashamed. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what has happened to me. These are the things I've had to deal with. It shaped me as, as to who I am as a person today. Now, here's what's sad. Your spouse will never get to experience that either. So you're not only shortchanging yourself, but now you're shortchanging your spouse because neither one of you get to experience what true intimacy is all about, what true marriage is all about. So let me give you a principle, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Wherever secrets live, intimacy dies. Wherever intimacy lives, secrets die. Now listen to me very carefully. I'm not supposed to have intimacy, this type of intimacy, with anyone else than my wife. No one needs to know some of the things that's happened in the past or some of the things that have happened to me. I'm not supposed to be intimate this way with others. But God designed marriage to be a special relationship where two become one. It is a covenant where we have basis on mutual trust and honesty and openness is what builds that trust. And God said when he created Adam and Eve and he brought them together, they literally were naked and not ashamed. In other words, they had nothing to hide. This is who I am. I love you for the way you are and you love me for the way I am. Wow. Wherever secrets live, intimacy dies. Wherever intimacy lives, secrets die. If you want intimacy in your marriage, you cannot have secrets. Now, some of you are going, oh, my gosh. I never told these things to them before we got married. They don't know this. This would ruin our marriage, Alan. Well, I know. So let me just be open and honest with you and just be upfront. If something has affected you to the point that you cannot talk about it with your spouse and you feel like you have to hide it and you suffer from guilt and shame, you need counseling. Because I can promise you that it's affecting your behavior. It's affecting the way you act and you probably don't even know it. I'll explain why in just a minute. But I want you to understand the purpose of counseling. The purpose of counseling is to expose dysfunctional behavior and to get to the root cause of the dysfunctional behavior so that you can be set free. Jesus said this, and it's so true. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you. Yes. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The majority of us, we don't want the truth. We're not only dishonest with other people, we're dishonest with ourselves. We lie to ourselves. But the problem is, 
uh, this dishonesty, these lies, they hold us in bondage. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Some of you need to get into counseling and get to the root cause of your dysfunctional behavior because that dysfunctional behavior is keeping you from enjoying the marriage that God wants you to have where you can truly be naked in front of your wife and not ashamed. Not having these feelings of guilt, not feeling like I have to hide something, not feeling worthless. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't want me. Counseling gets to that. Now let's talk a little bit about dysfunctional behavior because everyone talks about dysfunctional behavior, but very few people ever define it. I'm always amazed at people who do, do not know what dysfunctional behavior is. So let me just explain what dysfunctional behavior is. Is that all right? Dysfunctional is a compound word. Can you imagine that? It's made up of two words. It's made up of a prefix and a root. The root word, of course, is functional. The prefix is dis, D-Y-S. The prefix actually means abnormal. So dysfunctional simply means that you don't function normally. Your behavior is not normal. But here's the problem with dysfunctional behavior. The problem with dysfunctional behavior is if you're dysfunctional, you don't know it. Or at least most of the time you don't know it. And the reason you don't know it is because probably you were raised in a dysfunctional family. And if you were raised in a dysfunctional family, that's all you've ever known. That's the norm. It's normal to you to act this way. So you grow up and you're dysfunctional and you go into a marriage. And now your dysfunctional behavior is creating problems in your marriage. But you don't think it's you, it's them. They're nuts. What you don't realize though is you're the one that's dysfunctional. You're not functioning normally. You don't act normal. But it's normal to you. And maybe you weren't raised in a dysfunctional family, but something happened to you. Let's go back to the molestation. You were molested as a child. Maybe the girl, or maybe the babysitter came over and her boyfriend did, and she stepped out of the room and the boyfriend did something he shouldn't have done, and you were eight years old. And so you had to deal with it as an eight-year-old, and the way that you dealt with it I don't know, but however it did, you, the way you dealt with it, in a sense, was not normal because as an eight-year-old, you can't normally deal with that. And so you learn how to function in that way because that helps you get over the problem you had. But now you are dysfunctional. Now you come into a marriage. You're married to this person, and the only way that this is going to work is if we function the way God wanted us to. We function normally, but you're dysfunctional. And then you have children, and you've got this dysfunctional home. The purpose of counseling is to expose dysfunctional behavior. But the reason you expose it is to get to the root problem. Because you don't realize why it's dysfunctional until you can get to the root and find out why you're acting the way you act. How you develop this type of behavior to compensate for what was done for you or for the environment you were raised in. And so you go to a good counselor. Let me just say this. Good counselors are rare. I know we have a lot of counselors in our, in, in our congregation, but let me just say this. You can tell yourself, well, I'm one of the good ones. But good counselors are rare. Because what good counselors will do is they'll be able to tell right off the bat as they begin to talk with you that you've got dysfunctional behavior. And then they'll start dealing with feelings because feelings give them an insight into how you perceive things. Is it your fault? Is it theirs fault? Is it everyone else's fault? How do you perceive this? If it's anger, it means it's not your fault, it's someone else's. If there's guilt, it means that you've taken it all upon yourself. And so they get into feelings, if you always wonder why in the world they do that. And then what they'll do is once they find that feeling, 
that's sparking that dysfunctional behavior, they get you to get to that point where you're feeling exactly what you felt when that situation occurred that caused all this. And out of the clear blue, they'll just throw a little game out there and say, I want you to finish this sitting. Just, just say whatever comes to your mind. First thing that comes to your mind. One day I, and you go, one day I, and all of a sudden something pops up in your mind. Our babysitter's boyfriend came over. Hmm. So the counselor starts exploring that. So what did the boyfriend do? I don't remember. You don't remember. Well, yeah, I remember. I want to talk about it. We need to talk about this. Because when you were eight years old, something happened, and that was an emotionally charged situation. And you dealt with it the best you could as an eight-year-old. But what you don't realize is that created dysfunctional behavior. So what they have to do is they have to get to that point where they can understand the assumptions you made and the way that you coped with this, your coping mechanism. And so basically they come in and they show you, and then they do something that the Bible always does. You remember when Jesus would come and he'd say, you have been told blah, 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 but I tell you this. You see, some people won't do the right thing until they can see the wrong thing exposed. And so once they find that wrong behavior and why you feel the way that you do and the assumptions that you have, then they have to teach you how to renew your mind according to Romans, the 12th chapter. And so what they'll end up doing is they'll come and say, this thing happened to you and this is how you dealt with it and this is what you assumed. And so this is the way you've been living. But I say unto you, and this is what the Bible says, this is how you're supposed to act. And so what will take place, and this is happens as an adult, you'll get in a situation, those emotions come up, and you revert back to the way that you were when you were eight years old. And you'll know you're acting irrationally, but those feelings are so there, it's an emotionally charged situation, and then you have to literally renew your mind. You have to say, oh, I know why I'm acting this way. I know why that took place. The Word of God says, until you can break that. Now, I hate to say this, but the reason I bring this up is 33% of all women, by the time they're 18 years old, will be sexually molested. And that's only the ones that report it. Some statistics say for those who aren't reported can go as high as 65% of women. 65% of women will be molested. The statistics are, are, are less for boys, but boys are molested too. Bad things happen. We're living in an environment where these things take place. Then we go into a marriage, and we've been hiding this thing from the person that we married. And all of a sudden, all he knows is, boy, we have problems we get in certain areas. I have no reason, I have no understanding as to why she acts the, re the way that she does. I'm here to tell you that your first sign that you need counseling is if you cannot be naked, allegorically speaking, in front of your spouse. Open and honest with them. You have to hide certain things. Now, I'm not saying to bring out everything that would hurt them from your past. But I'm talking about where you can. This is who I am. This is what's taking place. If that's not there, that's your first sign. That you know what? I need some help. Because it's hurting our marriage. Now... These are the fundamental principles that you need to know before you get married. Because once you get married and you learn these, you learn them by hard knocks. Experience. And the problem today is pastors do not teach on this. People go to churches where they are not taught. 
Therefore, they remain in a horrible situation and they have crappy lives. And Jesus came not only to give you eternal life, but he said to give you life more abundantly. The word of God, the purpose of it is to give you a great life. I'm not here to stir things up. I'm not here to try and dredge things up from your past. Things that you don't want to talk about to hurt you. I'm here to tell you that God wants you to have a great marriage. Let me tell you. Allegorically speaking, Lisa will know this, I am naked and open and an open book. You want to ask it, here it is. And she's that way with me now. But were you that way when we first got married? No. Just because she didn't know that we were supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be open. With each other and honest with each other. Because this is a special relationship. And in the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, the reason it talks about its nakedness is not for the physical aspect of it. It's for the allegorical aspect. That they were open, they were honest, there was nothing to hide. We are building this marriage covenant on trust. And immediately they sin. And human nature is to cover it up. But you don't ever get to the root of your problems. Some of you have problems in your marriage and you can't even discuss the problem. You can't even be honest on the way it makes you feel. The reason Lisa and I have such a good marriage is because we would go, we would talk about, you did this and this is how it made me feel. Some of you are going, if I told my wife how I actually felt, or you wives are saying, if I told my husband how I actually felt, well, that's why... Your marriage is in the rut that it is and will never get out. 